Church, I oftentimes find myself thinking about my heritage, about where I've come from, about my family of origin. And for a short time, I got really interested in it. But I'm super cheap, and so what really interested, combined with being somewhat cheap, is you sign up for Ancestry.com for a free month, and you work as hard as you can, and then cancel your subscription and save everything you've worked on. Uh, and so really, I'm using the work of other people who really put the work in and thinking that our past aligned and discovered all kinds of crazy things about my family of origin uh, were German. Um, we came uh, over to the United States very, very early on, um, before it was the United States, uh, through religious persecution, um, uh, amongst other things. It's incredible to think about our families, to think about where we come from. And it helps to find, in many ways, especially in this world, who we are. One of my favorite things to do when we get together with family, uh, especially on holidays like Easter or Christmas or other times, is we will sit down and we'll share stories. We'll share family stories. And oftentimes, they're at the expense of some of the different people who make up our past. You know those people. We refer to them as crazy uncles, right? But isn't there a problem with that? Why is the crazy people always the uncles? Haven't you met one or two crazy aunts in your lifetime? Or let's be honest, a crazy mom or a dad? How about a brother or a sister, right? So we have all kinds of stories from our family of heritage. We have stories in my my family of people who were arrested for making bombs, true story. I have a great-grandmother who stopped an armed robbery at the age of 85 by screaming at the man <laughs> from the top of the steps. And then last week, we were together with Rachel's family, and one of the sweetest things happened. Rachel's grandpa, who I love, we call him Pappy. I just haven't had a procedure done this week, but this was in advance of that. We gathered together, we prayed for him. Uh, it was a moving time of prayer for him, but then he said, <laughs> he said, I want to pray for you. And he prayed for us, and it, prayed, it was almost like that incredible blessing from Numbers chapter 6, right? There's this rich heritage of this man who had loved Jesus and loved his family and just incredible parts of who we are. Maybe your family of origin story is a little bit like that, a little bit of a mixed bag. You've got the bomb makers <laughs> and the people who are praying ironic blessings over you, right? You've got those two different things. You've got the crazy uncle and the really cool aunt or whatever it is. And you've got a mom and a dad who loved you and reared you, or, or maybe that's not your story. Maybe your story of your parents of origin is a story of pain and heartache and heartbreak. For some reason in this world... Our experience with family is equally joyful and equally painful. And it makes me wonder, how does this come to be? How do we make sense of this? At the core, we understand when we read the Bible that family is part of God's design for his good creation. It's part of his intent. And so we don't make it to the end of chapter 1 of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, if you're familiar with it. 
that we have God creating man and woman and creating family and telling them to be fruitful and multiply. And, and at the end of this, he changes from calling things good to saying things are very good. This idea of people in family populating the earth, uh, making the glory of God who He actually is at His core, a loving, gracious, merciful God, known to all of creation. This is God's story. But it's not just about individual family units. God sees humanity as a family. And He sees them as His People. In essence, when God looks at our world, He sees Himself as our Father, and we as His children. That's God's intent when He speaks about family. And so, a little bit later in the book of Genesis, He calls a man named Abraham, and He says, listen, you're really super old, but I'm going to do something miraculous. Abraham was like 100 years old. From you, I'm going to, to create a great people, a great family. He says that this will be so big, this family is going to be so big, it's going to number the stars in the sky. And God miraculously fulfills this promise. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Eventually Isaac has a son named Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. That's where we get that from. And Jacob has 12 sons, really a couple more than that, but 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel, the people of God, God's family vision is coming to life on the earth. And this is God's dream that He, as a father, would dwell with His children in a land of His choosing. And there would be uh, what He calls peace. This is the Hebrew word shalom. Right? It doesn't just mean that uh, your two sons aren't fighting upstairs right now. Right? Shalom in the ancient context means that everything is functioning as it ought to. Everything in its right order. This is what family is intended to be. But you don't have to go too far into the story. In fact, Genesis 1 tells of the creation of family. Genesis 3 tells of the destruction of family. Genesis 3 is a famous story a story that is uh, sort of shrunken down onto the idea of Adam and Eve doing something wrong by eating from the wrong tree. And while in a sense that's true, the bigger picture that's happening is Adam and Eve in essence saying we're going to do our own thing. We're going to step outside this family and launch our own way. After all, at the core of the temptation for them was, you will be like God. Well, who was God? God was their Father. And they're creating their own way, and God says to them, not as a matter of saying, I'm going to get you now for your bad doings, but as a matter of speaking truth into the situation, that you have invited all kinds of chaos into what once was shalom. You've invited all kinds of curses. It's like what happens when a three-year-old decides they're going to be in charge of the household. And so it shouldn't surprise us then 
that once was described as peace by the time we get to Genesis chapter 4 is defined by the simple term murder. When two brothers are in such, such stress and such conflict that one kills the other. And here's what we need to understand in this family reality that God has instituted in the world is that when we step outside of God's design for our function as human beings, to bring Him glory, to be agents of love, to work together for the good of this world, we invite all kinds of chaos that leads to all kinds of violence in our world. That within one generation, family becomes enemy. Love becomes murder. And even back in Genesis chapter 3, when the, the step outside of God's family design is made, what you have is instant shame. You remember the story? Adam and Eve, as they look at each other, they're ashamed of what they've done. They're ashamed they've stepped out of this thing. And when God speaks to them, the very first thing they do is they blame. Right? Well, it was her fault. No, it was his fault. No, it was the devil's fault. Blame him. Shame leads to blame. And blame always leads to all kinds of violence. Relational violence, physical violence, emotional violence. And shalom is compromised in our world. The rest of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is the books that, uh, that are written, uh, speak of the narrative and, and other things that happen from the time of, of God's creation all the way up until a couple hundred years before Jesus uh, shows up on, er on earth. What you really have in all of those books is a continual retelling of the story I just told you. Time and time and time again. And so Jesus, when He arrives, enters right into this storyline. Jesus, known as the Son of God, who is our Father, enters into a storyline of a God who wants to gather His people in a land where they can live together and wants there to be blessing and peace and shalom and everyone in their right place. Jesus comes right into that mess. And this is how one of, the, one of the, the closest people to Jesus, his name was John, he was a close follower of Jesus. This is how John refers to Jesus' arrival in John chapter 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is one of the ways that John refers to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What does this sound like? This sounds like Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? In the beginning. And it also sounds like shalom. A family living together. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 3 says, Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And then listen to this. In Him was life. And that life was the light of of all mankind. See that? That one of the people who knew Jesus the best when he was reflecting on his life later said, 
of this, of Jesus coming. That He came to once again bring us back into that experience of shalom and of family. And here's how He was going to do it. By offering us true life. And to give us that true life, He was going to be a light. In other words, He would light a path that would lead us back to that true reality of life. So John, as well as the other Gospel writers, go on to tell us how Jesus lived His earthly life. And it should not surprise us the things that are told in that reality. Jesus heals sick people. He's restoring them. He casts out evil spirits or the curses that are on people. And even more significant perhaps than those two things, every single person Jesus connects to He is moving to restore them to who they truly are. Whether that be a person who is super religious, like a guy named Nicodemus, or a person who is living their own way in greed and in power like Zacchaeus. To each of them, Jesus is offering a path back to God's true way of being human of living as God created us to be. And it shouldn't surprise us then, as Jesus is doing this, He he gathers a following. People are interested in this. Why? Because they lived in the same kind of world that we live in. Broken, sickness, pain, evil, separation, difficulty, struggle all around. And Jesus is restoring things wherever He goes. And it comes to this climactic moment that we celebrated last week where it looks like the people are in a groundswell of support are are throwing their support behind Jesus and saying, we're going to follow Him. And Jesus strangely responds to that by saying, I've got to die. And you can imagine the silence that follows a statement like that. Why? Why does all of this, this light in the darkness, this healing and casting out curses and demons and speaking identity and value back into people's life, why does this lead to death on a Roman cross? Jesus understood that if He was going to set things right, if He truly was going to be a light in the darkness, then He had to go to the darkest place. The Apostle Paul, who was an early follower of Jesus, wrote it like this to the church in Ephesus. He said, He went and led captive a host of captives. In other words, if Jesus was going to set people free, it wasn't just the earthly sickness or pain or difficulty or identities that needed His touch. But it was the very thing that was chaining us all up. Death itself. Our efforts to live life our own way. And so Jesus, because He loved you, and me, and the whole world, willingly entered into 
this. Experiencing shame and blame that led to an utter reality of violence on a hill just outside the city gates of Jerusalem. So that Jesus could rescue people like you and me who have been held captive by our shame, by our efforts to blame, and by all the violence unto death that it has brought. And this is an incredibly heroic story if it ends here. Valiant, but unsuccessful. Because the only way you can set free prisoners like that is to actually defeat the enemy that stands in front of you. And that's why we gather today. And that's why we put extra lights up. And that's why we have special kids' talks and smash eggs on each other's heads. And that's why we have pastries in the back and juice and coffee. And that's why there's a little extra hop in our step this morning. Because on Easter, what we realize is that Jesus didn't just try to set things right. He won the victory that needed to be won in order to finally set us free from what has held us truly captive. Listen to how John, that close friend of Jesus, describes some of the moments of that very first Easter. And tell me what it sounds like. John says this in John chapter 20, verse 1. He says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. Friends, this once again is creation language. The first day of a new week of creation. The first creation intended for all things to be right. The shalom, the peace of God to be there. Jesus in His resurrection is announcing to anyone who would hear or come near and see that something new is underway. A new week has dawned. The darkness is fading and the light has risen. And where does all of this take place according to John? This is what he says in verse 15. Can you believe it? It takes place in a garden. Just like Genesis chapter 1. And Mary, when she sees Jesus, says, listen, thinking He was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried Him away, tell me where you have put Him and I will go get him. This should stun us, right? That Mary, when she sees Jesus, thinks that he is a gardener. One commentator says it this way, this is exactly the right mistake to make. Because Jesus, in fact, is the gardener of Genesis chapter 1, as John reminded us in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, with God creating all things. And that He is the new gardener in the new garden of the new week. Thinking about this later, the Apostle Paul said this to the Corinthians, that if anyone embraces this truth, if anyone is in Christ, behold, the Apostle Paul says, he or she 
is new creation. You are Genesis 1 redone. Restored back to God's original plan. So it shouldn't surprise us then that John records a couple more things about this reality of Jesus. This is what he says in verse 21. Listen to what he does. He says, again, Jesus said, he's talking to the disciples now, peace be with you. There's that word, shalom, he's speaking. This is not just an interesting greeting, right? This is not a hello or a how do you do or a hi there. This is a proclamation that God's new creation is underway. That God is once again with His people and He's gathering them and there's going to be shalom again. And then He does something quite fascinating. Something actually quite inappropriate in our new COVID days, right? This is what He says in verse 22. And with that, He breathed on them. That's totally anathema these days. Don't do that, right? And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Why does John say it like this? Did Jesus really go up and breathe on them? He might have. We don't know. Possibly. John's writing in Genesis chapter 1 language. How did, how did God create Adam and Eve, according to the narrator? He breathed life into them. Do you see what Jesus is doing to these disciples? He's breathing new life into them instituting the shalom of the creation of God. And oh, by the way, how many disciples did Jesus call? Twelve. Why? Just because He thought twelve would be a good number? Of course not. Because they were symbolic of the twelve tribes of Israel, those twelve sons of Jacob, who were the fulfillment of God's promise for a family from Abraham. Don't you see what Jesus is doing on this very first Easter? He's launching a whole new creation family. He's bringing peace. And He's breathing new life. And He's gathering around Him a new family for God. Friends, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, whether you are just perhaps interested in Jesus, whether you've checked Him out and dismissed Him already, whether you are skeptical about things, whether you believe Jesus but have lots of questions about other things, or whether you have been <clears throat> sincerely following Him for generations. Hear this this morning. That the resurrection of Jesus, if it is true, means that Genesis chapter 1 is once again underway. And that anyone who comes near to Jesus and allows Him to breathe His Spirit on you has been welcomed into a new family of God with all kinds of possibilities. This is not a promise to you that life suddenly gets easy. It is also not a promise to you that life suddenly gets full of wonderful blessings. And yet, at the same time, it is a promise to you that if you follow the light of Jesus, it will lead you to the life that He promised. This Easter, we remember 
that God was not fine simply to watch humanity try to redefine what it meant to be human in Genesis chapter 3 and in every single moment since then in your life and in mine. Instead, because of His love, has never stopped pursuing us. That we might actually have the very thing we're striving to get and have no understanding how to get it. Fullness of life. True identity. Real purpose. Understanding what it actually means to be human. And therefore, when God wanted to regather His family, He could send no one other than His own Son. That anyone who believes in Him should no longer be part of the things of death, but has everlasting and full life. The tomb of Jesus is empty. And that changes everything. If you're visiting with us this morning, I want to invite you to come back next Sunday and in the Sundays to come as we begin to uh, tease out what it means to be part of this new family. We'll talk about ideas like adoption. That we are called uh, by the Apostle Paul adopted sons and daughters, welcomed into God, God's family. What does that mean? How do we understand that? How do we live into that? We'll talk about what it means to um, leave some of the baggage of our family of origins behind and, and by faith step in to this new reality of family and of faith. And then we'll also talk about what does it look like to live in this family? What is the ethos or the culture of this family? What does it mean to carry the name of Jesus? And we'll finish it all up by talking about the Holy Spirit and His ministry in uniting us together as a family. This will take us all the way through the end of May, and I'm super excited to take this journey with you. But as we continue singing this morning, and as we engage after our formal gathering is over, I remind you, celebrate. Raise your glasses. Eat your muffins. Smash some eggs on your forehead. Jesus is risen, and He is gathering a whole new family around Him. You pray with me.